You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For February 19th, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Australia's out-of-control wildfires in recent months have captured the world's attention and raised anew some serious questions about how climate change is affecting the continent down under, whether the country's leadership is taking appropriate action to address climate risk, and what the future holds for its unique weather patterns and ecosystem. After all, some 80% of the species that are found in Australia are only found there. And these fires have been exacerbated by the fact that Australia has a preponderance of eucalyptus trees, which are infamous for being a especially destructive in fires. Their leaves are shaped like little helicopter blades easily spreading fire over long distances. Their sap is oily and extremely flammable, and their wood burns very hot. And they have a nasty tendency to heat up and explode rather than just gradually burning. Once they get going, eucalyptus fires essentially create their own weather, including fire nados, twisters of fire, making it impossible to fight them. And the fires this season were especially fast-moving and destructive, bringing the rest of the world unbelievable scenes of people being forced to take refuge on beaches and wait for rescue after fire forced them to flee their homes and vacation spots. But of course, these fires are just a symptom of the increasingly destructive climate change that has continued to take its toll on the planet. The cause is excessive emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases from the burning of fossil fuels in our cars, our power plants, our homes and businesses, and our industrial processes. So any meaningful response to these wildfires must, by definition, include a plan that features energy transition, among other mitigation strategies, in order to reduce our consumption of fossil fuels. But that's a very tall order for Australia, which is one of the most fossil fuel-dependent countries in the world. It is either the world's largest or second-largest exporter of coal, depending on whose statistics you believe, and the top exporter of liquefied natural gas. It is the third-largest exporter of fossil fuels and producer of fossil-related emissions overall, behind only Saudi Arabia and Russia. It is the 14th-largest emitter of greenhouse gases, despite having just 0.3% of the global population. Fossil fuel exports contribute about 6% of the country's GDP. Which should tell you just about everything you need to know about the challenge that Australia faces in facing up to its own role in creating the conditions that led to this season's enormously destructive fires. At the same time, as we have heard in episodes 39, 71, 91, and 93, Australia has also been at the forefront of energy transition in important ways. After all, countries are complex things, neither completely villains nor heroes, and that goes for energy transition as much as it does anything else. But I did want to revisit Australia at this most painful of moments and take another look at its political, economic, and climate context in order to better round out our understanding of it. 
And so I asked Kate McKenzie to share her perspective on all this. She's a resident of Sydney who works in research, strategy, and communications around climate change and finance, and her relevant work history includes stints at the Financial Times, the Climate Institute, Climate KIC Australia, and currently Bloomberg Green. She's also an old friend of mine from Twitter, so it was a pleasure to have her join us on the show. And in the new segment of this episode, we'll note a remarkable turn of events in South Carolina, following our extensive coverage in episode 62. We'll salute a significant move toward renewables and away from coal in Arizona. We'll recognize a bold move into EV charging infrastructure by one of the world's top oil companies. We'll lament another casualty of climate change in California. And we'll applaud a significant energy transition move in Indonesia. But first, our conversation with Kate McKenzie, recorded February 3rd, 2020. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Kate, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. You live in Sydney, Australia, so the topic of today's show is near and dear to you as you've been living through a veritable climate hell for months now. Sydney's been under a blanket of smoke since September, and the last I checked, some 26 million acres of bush, more land than the U.S. state of Indiana, and more than the recent fire seasons in California and the Amazon rainforest combined, have burned in out-of-control wildfires, killing at least 28 people, destroying more than 2,600 homes, and killing an estimated 1 billion animals, pushing some species to the brink of extinction. And that was immediately followed by unusually intense storms that caused flash flooding in Queensland, along with massively destructive hailstorms that knocked out power to some areas, brought down trees, and soaked the southern part of Australia. And while the rain did help tamp down some of the fires a bit, it didn't extinguish them. Oh, and there was also this 186-mile-wide cloud of red dust that choked out some towns currently experiencing severe drought. But hey, apart from all that, how are things down under? Yeah, it's been difficult to think about to think about it all together, really, to be honest. I think for lots of people in the east and the southeast of the country, which is really the majority of the country's population, it's been a very long and strange and really confronting summer that we've had so far, and it's continuing in quite a few areas to be a really proximate threat. There's still fires around areas like Canberra. And we're still in a very, very dry period. We have had a little bit of rain in some areas in the last couple of weeks. And in Sydney right now, the air is pretty good. It's mostly been good the last couple of weeks. But that experience, even for me not needing to worry about the fires coming to my sort of inner Sydney suburb, the smoke was quite incredible yeah. going on for weeks and weeks and that sort of the, that amber light that people would have seen in photos. It's so freaky, isn't it? Yeah, and the smell of it and the mm-hmm. stinging your eyes and mm-hmm. worrying about the kids and it was school holidays. You know, we have our long school holidays here, of course, at this time of year because it's summer and lots of people I know were finding that really difficult, you know, just having to keep locked up in the house mm-hmm. for sort of days on end. Yeah, it's just awful. And constantly watching the news. A lot of people I know were stranded while they were on holidays. A lot of fires flared up in that period between Christmas and New Year. So people were fleeing down to beaches and Mm. having to just wait there for a day or two again with families and kids and elderly relatives and, you know, then drive through sort of burnt out areas. I don't know. It's hard to describe because I think we're very accustomed to these things being acute for a brief period and then going away. And it just 
keeps on happening. And as you mentioned, there are all these other really intense hailstorm in Canberra, the dust cloud. It's like the most trivial thing, but that led to some kind of bizarre like rain of mud in Sydney that night. So everything is kind of covered in dirt. And because it hasn't rained very much, it's still like that. Wow. Yeah. No, you're just a small plague and a bunch of locusts short of a proper apocalypse at this point. Exactly. It does feel like it. It's been sad. I remember getting through some of those long weeks of fires in California, and that amber light really got to me after a while. It's just creepy. Yeah. It really kind of gives you that sense of, is this what we have to look forward to? Yeah. Is more of this? It's quite disturbing on so many levels. Well, we're going to talk about a lot of details that will hopefully illuminate the situation there a bit today. But before we go any further, I feel like a clarification is in order, especially for those who really don't know that much about Australia. These fires are consistently called quote-unquote bushfires, but as we've seen, several thousand homes have burned, so it's not all bush, obviously. So what kind of terrain has been burning and how many people live in those areas? So Australians really do like to live pretty close to the bush. So in a sense, you know, we've got a lot of suburban or like really outer suburban areas that have quite a lot of this forest around them. For people like me who are in more inner city, it's not this kind of landscape at all or this kind of terrain. But there are a lot of sort of coastal and hinterland towns and some big regional centres where you've sort of got a big population centre surrounded by, you know, lots of suburbs and smaller towns where Often, you know, people are quite near big areas of forest or even just small areas of forest that are sort of connected. It's not this sort of sparse, outback type landscape that people might envisage by any means, but it's it's not like rainforest, although there have been some areas like that that have been burning as well. There are areas that have a lot of a lot of wildlife, and this is partly why the estimate that a billion animals have died. These sorts of forests are really rich in all kinds of wildlife, not necessarily like unique to those specific regions, but very prolific. And I think everyone's probably seen the koalas and kangaroos. It's particularly forests that those sort of very well-known mammals like koalas really, really like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, from this side of the pond, the dominant discussion about these wildfires seems to center around the relationship that they have with climate change. And on the surface of it, I'd say that that discussion falls along typical lines. Those who are concerned about climate change and who advocate for energy transition and other mitigation and adaptation measures emphasize that researchers have been forecasting for a long time that global warming would exacerbate wildfires in Australia and point to some obvious fingerprints of climate change on the fires, like increasing temperatures and averages and extreme and a roughly 20-year-long warming trend accompanied by increasing drought. Whereas those who want to dismiss climate change, like the fossil fuel and mining interests in Australia and the politicians and pundits who serve them, like Prime Minister Scott Morrison and James Morrow, the right-wing opinion editor of Australia's Daily Telegraph newspaper, they seem to focus on everything but climate change. Instead, they're saying that this is all totally normal for Australia or blaming arsonists or blaming poor forest management practices or blaming leftists and environmentalists. I mean, does that discussion sound like what What's happening where you are? Yeah, it's quite extraordinary, actually. This sort of trope that it's 
particularly the Green Party here, which is obviously a kind of minority party as their counterparts are in most countries, that they had somehow stopped controlled burns taking place or hazard reduction burns, I think is the more correct term for it, that is done in the colder months of the year. Is there a really established practice in Australia? I remember as a kid growing up in the Sunshine Coast hinterland, you'd see little burns going on often in winter, just driving along see them near the road and it borrows, although perhaps it doesn't borrow in an optimal way, from a, a really ancient tradition and ancient sort of culture and knowledge of Australia's Indigenous people. Everyone in Australia sort of knows that backburning or hazard reduction burning has to happen. There's been this narrative emerging like really powerfully on social media that that has been constrained because of greenies and it's always something that, you know, is sort of kicked around. It doesn't really have much basis in reality at all. There was a really good piece six or eight weeks ago by, I think, the ABC. They interviewed two or three catastrophe fire hazard experts who all said the thing that's encroaching on the ability to do these hazard reduction burns is mostly the fact that the window in which you can do them is getting smaller. And particularly when you have drought, you've got shorter or cooler season and you've got drought, so everything's drier and more combustible, then it's harder to do those burns because you can't do them safely. You can only do them safely in certain conditions. And if your hazard reduction burn turns into a hazard, then it sort of defeats the purpose. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, in terms of, you know, is climate change a factor in this? Of course, it's a factor in this. We have really a really great sort of bench of climate scientists in Australia. Obviously, lots of different factors contribute to fire seasons and to individual fires, but the state of the land and things like the evapotranspiration, the periods of extended extreme heat, precipitation is a little more complex as a climate factor in Australia, but there are enough sort of factors that have no doubt exacerbated and contributed to this fire season that tend to have very clear fire fingerprints. And I'm sure we'll start seeing some attribution studies around this specific season coming out pretty soon that back that up. But there's many climate scientists here are, are on the record of saying there's certainly a connection there. And yeah, it has split along political lines. Weirdly, I don't know if all your listeners will know this already, but a lot of Australians actually take climate change seriously. It's a majority of Australians are concerned about climate change. There's a couple of regular public polls that are done in quite a lot of depth on the issue every year. One from the middle of last year found that 81% of Australians are concerned that climate change will result in more droughts and floods. 78% are concerned about water shortages, and that's gone up 11 percentage points apparently. And 54% of Australians reject the idea that Australia should not act on climate change until other emitters do it. So it even extends to our role in the international sphere. It's probably not dissimilar to the US in that way. And that I think there's, there's some polling in the US that show that sort of paradox in terms of where the majority public opinion is versus the difficulty in the politics. Yeah. Well, I can certainly appreciate the difficulty of getting those prescribed burns done when there's no cold and wet weather to do them in. I actually spent years trying to get rid of eucalyptus trees in the Bay Area because of the fire risk. Cut a lot of them down and burned hundreds of burn piles of <laughs> eucalyptus debris. And we would try to do it always, like preferably in the middle of a downpour, or at least when everything was soaking wet, because it was really the only way that we could be sure that we could control 
that stuff. The way that eucalyptus burns is so incredibly hot and explosive. A light breeze and it'll run away from you. And indeed it did on me once. So I can definitely appreciate the difficulty of that. But what about this point that we've often heard here, at least in the political press, about the argument that it was really arsonists that were responsible in Australia? Is there any evidence for that? No. So this one was very clearly debunked. We have a very state-based system. I think there were some numbers that were misrepresented, and I don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but were misrepresented to indicate that there was, I think, more than 100 arson offences in one state. And it actually turned out that a lot of these were things like people being reprimanded or admonished in some way for throwing a cigarette butt out of a car mm. window. We've had total fire bans almost consistently throughout the summer in many areas, as you can imagine. So a lot of them were those sorts of transgressions. The actual number of genuine like arson or attempted arson apprehensions were really small and kind of count them on one hand. And the other thing is, of course, there's arson every year. There's always a few. It's a phenomenon that I think occurs in many parts of the world. The thing is the sort of the size of these fires and how rapidly they spread, how hard they've been to extinguish or even bring under control in a lot of cases. And, you know, you've had fires joining up and just getting bigger and bigger. And that's a whole different issue to the question of how how the fires started because, you know, fires can start in a number of ways. But, yeah, that that narrative got a lot of traction and I wish it was just down to a freak season of arsonists because at least we wouldn't have to worry about it happening again so much. That's probably easier to manage, isn't it? Right. And if you're trying to deny the reality of climate change playing a role here, then that's a convenient excuse. But on that point, on the politics of all this, in his speech to the National Press Club on January 29th, Prime Minister Scott Morrison spoke about the bushfires, and he really emphasized resilience to the changing climate. And I read some of the transcript. I saw him talking up some of the renewable investments that Australia is making. But he barely talked at all about backing away from fossil fuels. So what was your impression of that speech? Was it significant, or is Australia as a wealthy country that is vulnerable to many extremes from both climate change and natural climate patterns, already putting a lot of effort into adaptation. I think maybe the only thing that was significant about that speech was that it seemed to indicate an acceptance that climate change has a role in these things. And even then, he did it in a fairly slightly kind of low-key way. But in a sense, at least to have a very optimistic take on it, we are out of the kind of rampant denialism, maybe, I don't know. And that has been such a powerful force politically, just basically outright denialism. And now we're probably seeing it morph more into, well, you know, it's happening, but we can't be expected to do anything about it that might have any sort of near-term effects on our mining industry, mm. for example, or our resource extraction industry. Oh, and adaptation. Yeah, Australia's interesting. Like, it's a wealthy country. It's very exposed to the effects of climate change. So you would expect that we'd be pretty advanced in terms of thinking about climate adaptation and having invested in it. It's a very mixed picture. You know, there have been some significant efforts. On the research side, there was this big flagship partnership called NCAF that ran for about 10 years. But it's basically been defunded over the last two or three years. 
So there's now no sort of national centre that sits across all the knowledge about climate change adaptation. And adaptation is a horrendously complex subject, as you've experienced firsthand and have heard from some of your earlier guests. So many different factors come into it. It gets into many different aspects of policy and industry and, and you know, society. It's a bit baffling to me that it's something that it's been sort of not really addressed in a very sort of comprehensive way, despite lots of little pockets of effort around the country and often at a state level rather than a sort of federal level. We've had numerous inquiries and task forces and reviews that have touched on adaptation and resilience. Almost all of them, I'd say, have not led to very much in the way of an actual policy response. Some of them have led to initiatives here and there, bits of little special funding for sort of special projects in particular regions, but there's not a lot of sort of broad policy reform that would really help because, you know, it gets down to things like planning rules and all of this very complex stuff and who pays and how do these risks have to be considered, which are often policy questions. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess one of the big questions in my mind here is, are the politics of this as obvious as they seem? You know, Prime Minister Morrison and his right-wing cohort are beholden to the fossil fuel and mining sectors, which are a huge part of Australia's economic base. Surely everyone understands they're not particularly interested in the actual facts of the growing wildfire risk and are primarily interested in protecting those incumbent industries. Yeah, I think it is almost that straightforward, really. There's a little more to it than that, but that is a big part of it. And I think particularly on the export side, that's been really crucial. Thermal coal, but also met coal and iron ore are big proportions of our export income. And of course, LNG is also now like a really big export earner for Australia. So yeah, and I think like a lot of your listeners will maybe be aware that Australia's had this extraordinarily long period of economic growth, or at least, you know, without a two consecutive quarter recession. And, you know, we've got a lot of issues here with real incomes stagnating while the cost of living rises. So it's not really been a walk in the park for a lot of people by any means. But one of the factors in avoiding recession for such a long period, I think it's around 25 years now, has been the massive kind of wave of demand for our mining exports, largely from China, although from some other Asian nations as well. So... Yeah, like the fossil fuel industry, or rather, I guess, the kind of broader mining industry, which itself is somewhat beholden to the fossil fuel subsection that's focused on fossil fuels, you know, that they are incredibly powerful. It's a country with a few big industries, finance, resources, agriculture, I guess you could say tourism and education, but we tend to have kind of oligopolies. It's not quite correct to say that probably in an industry like mining resources, but You have a bunch of like big companies that are either local, dual listed, but global companies or foreign companies like Glencore that have a very big presence here. And they're very, they're very active in industry groups and lobby groups, and they have a big influence on the political agenda. It's not really a secret. They have a lot of sway. Hmm. So what's happening on the other side of those politics? I mean, how is the cohort of Australia's climate hawks and energy transitionistas coming along? Are they winning more hearts and minds as a consequence of these wildfires? Are there even more people who still need to be convinced that climate change is a serious issue that must be dealt with? Or has everyone chosen a side at this point? 
Yeah, in the political arena, it's actually a bit strange at the moment. The right-wing coalition that we've had in government since 2013, at one point, they did experiment with a more substantive approach to climate policy under Malcolm Turnbull a couple of years ago. And you know what happened to him. And that was largely because he tried to get up something resembling a sort of energy policy with an emissions element. And that was not tolerable by some powerful elements in the party who just would not stand for basically any any kind of like real emissions policy. And that was, I think, like the sixth attempt at a detailed federal energy policy that would also tackle emissions. And emissions, of course, they need to be factored into any really robust energy policy because investors and business want to know what the policy pathway looks like. So what that's meant, in a sense, our opposition, which is a sort of centre-left party called the Labour Party, they've been very burnt by political losses over the last few years in the sense that they've lost elections, certainly in 2013, and to some extent the two elections since then have been somewhat lost on climate policy grounds. I would say the last election's not really fair to say that. It didn't feature very prominently there. But in a sense, what did feature prominently in the last election was this sort of culture war that emerged over the Adani mine in the Galilee Basin. And the Labour Party really struggled in the state of Queensland where that mine is supposed to be built. And that seems to have had an incredibly sort of chilling effect on the party in terms of how it talks about coal and even maybe more broadly how it talks about climate. So they still have a, a somewhat more ambitious climate target, like in terms of sort of 2030 targets for emissions reduction. There is a, a bit more what you'd want to see from a trajectory towards net zero. I think it's 45 or 40% reductions. But the opposition leader has been at pains to embrace thermal coal it, just in these last few weeks even and to talk up this idea that Australia's Thermal coal exports are good because the coal supposedly burns cleaner and if we're not exporting it, then that would be bad for emissions. And I think you're probably well aware that the cleanness of how the coal burns is a lot more to do with the type of plant that it burns in right. and the emissions are a component of the energy density above all. Those sort of claims about our naturally cleaner coal are really, really over-egged. It's mostly around lower transit costs because it's more dense. So, yeah, extraction, I guess, has become like a bigger political issue here and the Adani mine becoming this real sort of flashpoint over the last few years probably arguably hasn't helped that. I could talk about that a lot more, but I don't know how interesting it is. Mm. <laughs> but it's became this sort of culture war symbol. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Anytime I hear somebody making an argument about how much cleaner their coal is than somebody else's coal, I just <laughs> I just have to laugh. I'm like, okay, so you're bragging about the fact that you're wearing your cleanest, dirty shirt. That's great. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show.
In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Longtime listeners will recall our deep dive in episode 62 into the abandoned VC Summer nuclear plant in South Carolina, which wasted $25 billion in ratepayer money and led to a $2 billion settlement and an ouster of some executives, among other things. One of the outcomes of that story was that members of the South Carolina legislature created the South Carolina Energy Caucus, which is made up of Republicans and Democrats who support clean energy alternatives. In January, that caucus celebrated the unanimous passage of a bill that will transition Santee Cooper, the municipal utility that co-owned the VC Summer plant, to 100% clean energy by 2050. The bill also calls for a fair and equitable transition to a clean energy future for energy workers and presses for more transparency and accountability in all energy decisions. The future of the utility is expected to be vigorously debated in the 2020 legislative session, following the release of a plan to reform it. It's a positive outcome from a truly horrible chapter in utility governance in South Carolina, and should serve as an object lesson about the political backlash against the endless cost and budget overruns and corruption that consistently plague attempts to build new nuclear plants. Item 2. Arizona's largest utility, Arizona Public Service, or APS, announced on January 22nd that it will get 45% of its power from renewable sources like solar and wind by the end of this decade, on the way to going 100% carbon-free by 20. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at MikeSugarMusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.